Heavenly Father, thank you that you are faithful and just, that when we confess our sins, you forgive us of those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Faithful to your Son, who paid the penalty for our sins, and continues to do so for even those things we will commit in the future. We're grateful, Father, for what you provided through him. As we turn our attention to your word and understand a little bit more about our act of worship towards you in the manner that we live our life, may we allow the Holy Spirit to teach us. May we be protected from Satan and company as they attempt to take truth away from us and distract us with circumstances around us or perhaps things that we think about that are going to happen after youth group or tomorrow or even the upcoming school year, Father. Protect us from distractions, from our own thought processes. And may we be open to what the Holy Spirit would teach us tonight individually through what's communicated from Romans 12, 1 and 2. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the Christian way of life. We talk about Christianity. It's in this category of being a religion according to the world. And a religion is basically a set of beliefs that a person lives by. But Christianity isn't just a set of beliefs. Christianity is more than that. It's a relationship by which we operate. Now, the relationship that we're to operate by is the one where God is our Father, we're His children who are obedient to Him. Now, when we sin, we're disobedient. We don't lose our status as a child. We just lose the harmony or the commonality we have with what God's trying to accomplish through this time period. And so that's why we go to the confession of sin part, so that we restore commonality with Him. Basically, it means to agree with God. So the Christian way of life is basically a manner of worshiping God. Now, we're not going to focus on a list of things to do or not to do. We're going to identify some things that have to be a part of your life in order for you to be functioning as a believer in right standing with God. And we're not going to put those on you. The Bible already teaches those things. We've dealt with some of them already. First John chapter 1, talking about having fellowship with God. If there's sin in your life, you don't have fellowship with Him. Confess, get back in fellowship. We dealt with James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Well, we just went through the process of temptation where you have a trap baited for you by Satan and company that appeals to you and you take the bait in the trap and that causes you to leave fellowship because you've stopped depending upon what God's provided for you and now have taken something for yourself. It's independent operation from God. So there are reasons and protocols that God gives. Protocol is a response in a given situation. So when this happens, the protocol runs and you go through these things. If you sin, confess your sin is the protocol, restore to fellowship. Start following him again. It's that simple. We don't transform in our thought process unless we start thinking the way God tells us to think. We cannot come to youth group, cannot come to church, cannot read our Bibles at home, out of fellowship with God and expect to be transformed. We've done the math before, especially with a school year coming up here. You will spend over 30 hours a week in school. I'm not trying to rub it in. I know it's coming up. You'll spend an hour and a half once we get back to our normal schedule at youth group. 30 to 40 minutes of that will be a game. 10 to 20 minutes of that will be food and interaction with one another. And then 30 minutes, if we're lucky, of Bible teaching. 30 minutes versus 30 hours. You can't expect that just this youth group or operating carnally outside or inside of this youth group, is going to transform you into a follower of Christ. It can certainly help. Let's take a look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul is writing, and he says, I urge you therefore, brethren, he's talking to believers, uses that term brethren, 
by the mercies of God to present yourself to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship verse 2 says and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect we're going to define some terms here but if you want to know what Christianity is about it's not about salvation you need to be saved in order to have a relationship with God that is the only way you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ depend upon him to pay the penalty for your sins the Christian way of life is about how you walk out the life that God's given you in Christ this is our act of worship and it says a spiritual service of worship it's not physical it's not something that we do in our body in our flesh it's something we do from a spiritual platform from our human spirit governing how our soul carries and uses this body our job is to allow God to teach us and guide us to let the Spirit Holy Spirit teach our human spirit how to go through life and think the way God thinks to accomplish his will not our own let's take a look at a couple of terms here when we talk about the Christian way of life we're not referring to a list of things to do what we're referring to is the way that Christians are designed by God to live during their time as his representatives on this earth Remember Adam and Eve? They were created by God to glorify him, to reveal who he is, that he is love, omniscient, righteous, sovereign, omnipotent, eternal, and omnipresent to Satan and company. The Satan is Lucifer, the archangel, who was lifted up in pride and rebelled against God. He took a third of the angels with him. They are the company when I mention Satan and company. So Satan and company claimed that God was not loving or righteous because he sentenced them to eternity in the lake of fire. Well, God is righteous, so he must uphold the standard. God is love, and he always gives a chance to repent. Satan ha or Lucifer had his chance. He chose instead to try and go on his own. In Isaiah, he said that he would make his kingdom ab above God's kingdom, that he would rise up to the heavens, that he would establish his world. And he's got two other statements he made in Isaiah but he is trying to establish a kingdom above God's and tear God's down. That's why in America, especially today, we have such a battle between right and wrong to the point that what's right is now what's wrong, and what's wrong is now what's right. Satan is the prince of power of this world system, this air. He is dictating what's going on in this world as far as the way humans think. That's conformity to this world system. We are to be transformed. So the Christian way of life talks about how we live, not what we do. We can go and mimic what Jesus did on earth. Heal people or try to heal people. Pray for people. Give money to homeless people. Do, do nice things for other people that are nice, that the world sees are nice, that are beneficial and have some value and some merit in their own right. But if we don't do it the same way that he did it, it's self-righteous and it's unrighteous. It is sin to do anything apart from God. The book of Romans says that if it's not from faith, it's sin. Which means that if it's not from your dependence upon God in fellowship with him, that it's sin. Anything we do that is outside of fellowship with God is sin. Sounds kind of harsh. But we talked about light and darkness already with 1 John chapter 1. God is light in him, there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with God but walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But yet, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, 
but truth is in us. On or off, you're in or out of fellowship. You have fellowship with God or you do not have fellowship with God. It's not partial. That will be the lie that you will face as we go through the Christian way of life. Well, I'm okay with God in this area, but I'm not in this area. No, it's on or off. Christian way of life refers to your state of existence as a spiritual being in the manner by which you operate spiritually instead of carnally. Carnal means that you're operating from your soul and your body only. Some of these things are going to be a little ambiguous, unclear at first, but if you come to Sunday school or have come to Sunday school, you've got some of these terms, you probably are a little more familiar with them. We'll keep talking about them as we keep going throughout this kind of idea. If you have questions, obviously get a hold of me, we'll answer them. So it's about your state of existence. You must be a spiritual being first, and then you must operate spiritually to operate in what's called the Christian way of life. Now, fellowship refers to the believer's personal walk with God. It identifies that you're in harmony with God's word and his authority structures. So when God says don't lie, you agree lying is wrong. When God says that he's in charge, you agree that he's in charge. You don't make a decision without him directing you in that step. Outside of fellowship refers to your, the believer's personal walk with God as being disharmonious. It's become that way because the believer failed to obey or agree with God's word and his authority structure. See, the instant that we reach out and choose to take the bait in temptation, we have stopped obeying God and started obeying ourselves and our lust. Anything that we do that's not from dependence upon God and his word is sin. So the instant we reach out and take that bait, we have sinned. And we know that to be true from what we looked at in James 1, 14 and 15 as well. On our diagram here with the cross and the kneeling stick figure, the kneeling stick figure represents that he has accepted Christ as a savior. He's depended upon Christ to take the penalty for his sins. There's two spheres, two circles. They're two-dimensional on the board. They're really a 3D idea, like a ball. The first one refers to your position in Christ. In Titus, which is the book that we will be studying once the school year starts, when we get to chapter 2, verse 14, we will come across a verse that says that he has reserved for himself a people for his own possession. The Greek word is periousion, and it literally means a dot encompassed by a circle. Now, the dot is encompassed by the circle, surrounded by the circle, to show that the dot is owned by the circle. So Jesus, in this case, Christ, the Messiah, is the circle, and the believer is in Christ. He is owned by Christ. He is located inside of Christ. So that's what we call our position in Christ. So you're saved, you're in Christ. How is your walk? Are you in fellowship or out? That's that bottom sphere. Two-dimensional, looks like a circle on the board. Ephesians 5.18 is a command of God. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Here's the command part about fellowship. But be saturated to the point of control with the Holy Spirit. That's dependence upon God to guide and lead you every single second, every single moment. Continuous moments of fellowship with God. James 1.13-16. We dealt with verses 13-15. to 15. We didn't get to 16 in our study there. That's talking about the process of temptation. God does not tempt us with evil, but Satan and company bait a trap where we are tempted. We like what's in the, in the trap. We go after that. That takes us outside of fellowship. That's why the red dotted line and arrow goes out. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sin, he, being God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's restoration of fellowship. Now, if you want to gauge spiritual maturity, the typical way that people gauge spiritual maturity in this world, and it's totally a human thought process, is by the way people act. 
oh, he's a pastor. He must be spiritually mature. No, spiritual maturity isn't about the things that you do. It's measured in that time in which you sin and confess your sin. That time you want to decrease to reflex. Oh, sinned, confessed, done. Like a bas- basketball bouncing down and coming right back up. That's where you measure spiritual maturity. How long does it take for that ball to go down and then come back up? Does that ball go down the ground, sit there for 10 days, come back up before you confess your sin? The time that really reveals your spiritual maturity and the way for you personally to engage this, because you can't judge this against someone else. (laughs) We're, We're not spiritually mature over others in this world. The spiritual maturity, the way we measure that, if you want to start figuring out how you're growing spiritually, figure out how long it takes you between sinning and confessing. The shorter that time gets, the more dependent you're going to be upon God and what he says. You know, David was a king of Israel. He was called a man after God's own heart. And God's heart refers to his norms and thought processes, his uh, norms and principles, the things that God thinks and says to depend upon. So David was called a man after the things that God depends upon, the things that God says are the norms and standards for living. David was taking a stroll on one of his balconies one night, looked out and saw a woman bathing and crossed the way, liked the woman and called for the woman, sent one of his servants down to get the woman and had an affair with that woman. She was a married woman. In fact, she was married to one of his military commanders who was actually at war at the time. Having finished the affair, he decided, hey, I need to cover this up a little bit. And so he called back the military man from the battle line, said, hey, come back, give me a report on the battle, and then go spend some time with your wife. See, he was concerned that maybe there was a pregnancy involved. And so he figured, well, hey, if I bring this guy back from the battlefield, maybe they'll go ahead and cohabit, and then maybe if there's a pregnancy involved, they'll go ahead and he'll think it's his. So he's trying to cover this up. This is David, the man after God's own heart now. The guy go, comes back, says, no, 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 my men are on the battlefield. I should not be at home with my wife enjoying the life that I have there. I should be back out on the battlefield. Man of honor, man of valor. Goes back out to the battlefield. David, King David sends a messenger and says, I want you to tell the other generals to advance and then pull back, leaving this, gen- this commander out by himself. What was he doing? He was trapping the guy to where he was pretty much going to be killed. Sure enough, the command was given. The messenger gave the command to their generals. The commander went forward with the attack. Everyone pulled back. He was left alone, and he died. Murder. Man after God's own heart. Now, you wouldn't look at David... In that situation, having had an affair, having tried to cover it up in more than one ways, and finally when realizing he couldn't do it, going ahead and saying, let's kill this guy and say he's a man after God's own heart. But you know what David did every time he sinned? He went back, he grieved before God, he repented, changed his thought process, and confessed his sin to God. He said, it's not what I want that has mattered. I've done these wrong things followed my own thought process. I need your thought process. He tried to refocus. He let God then instruct him and teach him. And every time he failed, whether it was that egregious, that big, or not, he would go back and do that. Our job as believers is to do the same thing. 
to confess our sin every time. Now the benefit is when we confess our sin, the sin that we've committed that we aren't aware of, that's taken care of by God. When we confess our sin, we confess one sin. All the sins we've committed since the last time of fellowship are taken care of in that one fell swoop as well. If we're going to be after God's heart, we have to spend time in fellowship with him. Because we have to be in fellowship with him in order to be taught by him and learn his thought process. Definition of terms, repentance and confession. We've dealt with a little bit of these, or, or both of these a little bit already. Repentance is the individual's process of changing their mind regarding a belief on a particular subject. So let's say you believe that lying is A-OK, it's right to lie. And God says it's wrong to lie. You and he disagree. God says it's wrong, you say it's right. You first have to change what you think personally about that in order to agree with God. You can't hold on to lying is right and say, yeah, God, I agree with you. No, you don't. God says it's wrong, you say it's right. So when we talk about confession and the Christian way of life, you first have to change what you believe about why you sinned, whether you pursued pride or pursued sensuality or satisfaction in the flesh or pursued uh, materialism. You have to repent in your mind first, and basically it's like confessing yourself, yeah, that's wrong, I shouldn't be doing that. Once you've done that and your mind has changed on what you did, lying is now wrong. Okay, I should have known that, obviously. And now you go to God then and then say, God, I agree with you, lying's wrong, or whatever your sin was. So repentance has to take place before confession. They're not the same thing. Repentance is you changing your mind about what you've done. Confession is you telling God you're now back in agreement with him. We do that through prayer. That's only available to the believer. In Romans 12:1, Paul exhorts early church-age believers. He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Let's take a look at a couple of these words real quickly. We know we're talking to believers right here. Brethren. Paul is writing. He only talks to believers when he uses the term brethren. We are children of God if we have depended upon Christ as our Savior. His seed abides in us. So we are sons and daughters of God the Father through Jesus Christ the King. That makes all of us spiritually brothers and sisters if we've depended upon Christ to be our Savior. So yes, God created humanity, but if you want to be God's child, you have to depend upon Christ and Christ alone. can't depend upon Christ, and then money you can give to the church can't depend upon Christ, and then all these good things that you'll try to do for God's kingdom, you can't. It depends upon Christ and Him alone. He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren. This whole phrase here means I come alongside of you, Let me check this real quick. There's two different words. They're very similar. I want to make sure I got the right one for you. Glad I checked it. The word here is parakalo. It means I call you alongside of me. What's he saying? He's saying I'm doing this. I am by the mercies of God, presenting my body as a living sacrifice to him. I'm calling you to come alongside of me and join me in what I'm already doing. 
Now, I've heard a lot of leadership training seminars. I was in leadership in high school. I went all, all over California learning and listening to great leaders speaking, none of which were Christian in their presentation, maybe in their beliefs. But one of the things with leadership that I heard and kind of held on to was a good leader never asks people to do something they're not willing to do themselves. If I'm not willing to carry the trash from here to the dumpster myself, I shouldn't be asking any of you to do that at the end of a youth night. That's the idea. Now, Paul is using that same principle. It's not a biblical principle, but it's a good idea. He says, I'm calling you alongside of me. Join me in what I'm doing. This is what we are to do. Brothers, sisters in Christ, join me. And it says, by the mercies of God. Mercy refers to not getting what you should have got. And it doesn't mean like at Christmas time when you put on your Christmas wish list or your Amazon list to your parents, I want these things, and you don't get them. It's not what it's talking about. It usually is talking about that you don't get a punishment or a penalty that you rightfully deserve. Someone holds it back or withholds it. Or in our case with Christ, God paid the penalty for us and showed mercy so that we didn't have to pay it ourselves. All we had to do was depend upon him. So he says, I call you alongside of me, believers, by the mercies of God, and this is the command, for the purpose of presenting your bodies. Now this word present means to lay up on a table. The idea with this word is that you set yourself up on a place where you rest on that place and whatever happens, happens. Now it doesn't mean like what the world means when it says, well, whatever happens, happens. I'm not going to stop anything. What it means is that you are completely up on a table waiting for someone to use you the way they want to. In this case, God the Father. So you get up on that table, you say, Father, use me how you want to. I'm resting here. I'm waiting here for you. I'm not doing anything. I've laid myself up for you. Now the word body here, we had a couple different terms we could have had in the scripture. This is referring to the soma, which refers to the physical body. And if we were to stop here, you could have someone actually tell you and teach you wrongly so, that this means that you are to commit suicide. It's wrong, but someone could warp it that way at this point. Present your bodies to God. It's been done before. I think it was back in like 1991, 1992. I was really young. I was about four or five. And I was watching on TV. My mom was weeping. And I remember on the TV there was a news uh, show going on, breaking news. A guy had convinced about 45, 50 people to all do a mass suicide in one place. And that if they did it together at the same time, they would all go to a specific type of heaven. Sickening, isn't it? It's why we individually are supposed to test and prove what Scripture says. God holds you responsible for what you believe just like he holds me responsible. So you could stop here and warp this however you want, but look at what it says. Present your physical body a living and holy sacrifice. The word living here is three types of life in the Greek. Biological, soul life, and spirit life. Which one do you think this is? 
zoes, spiritual life, spiritually living. Present your bodies as spiritually living sacrifices to God. Set your vessel up on a table. This physical shell you have, which is spiritually alive, who is he talking about? Believers. We already know that from here, but this is even more of a harmony. Only believers have a human spirit. Generated at the moment you depend upon Christ to be your Savior. Present your bodies as a living, spiritually living, and holy sacrifice. Now here's the problem. We cannot create ourselves as holy. We can't create ourselves in general. But we cannot declare ourselves to be holy. We have to be declared holy. And we already are and were sinners, which is why we needed a Savior to begin with. But God says that you're going to be spiritually alive in this presentation of your body. But he also says that you've got to do this as a holy sacrifice. This term means set apart for service. And the only one who can make anything else holy is God. Now before we get into this place where we start thinking, well, I've got to let God make me holy in this process, that's not what it's saying. Yes, we grow spiritually. We grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not telling us we need to grow spiritually here. No, this is referring to what God has done and given us in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, one long sentence in the Greek language. It's like a legal contract, if you've ever read one of those. Just like a big old run-on sentence. In there, it's about verse 4 or 5, it says that God has declared us holy and blameless in our position in Christ. When you depend upon Christ, you are placed in Him, and in Him you are declared in your state of existence as being holy and blameless. Now, your walk with God may not be blameless, may not be right, but you in your state of existence are declared holy and blameless. And that's why you can and have the ability to present your body as a holy sacrifice because God has made you holy the instant you depend upon Christ as your Savior. Now, again, don't confuse that to mean that because he's made you holy, you will do holy things. No, you still have a choice. You have to learn how to walk out the declarations he has made about you. If he says you're holy and you're blameless, you have to learn how to go through the protocols and the thought process he has in order to carry out holy living, in order to carry out blameless living. That's position and fellowship. Now the result of this is that you present your body as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. What makes you acceptable to him? The blood of Christ paying your penalty. That makes you acceptable and nothing else. You cannot come to God with a bowl of fruit and vegetables and a salad and say, hey, here you go, accept me as an offering to you. Someone tried that once. He ended up killing his brother because he was unhappy with what God said about his vegetable salad presentation. Cain and Abel, look it up if you want. It's in Genesis. You have to do it right now when you get home probably. Now look at all of this he says is your spiritual service of worship. And what, what the Greek lays out different than the English is that he actually follows very much the Jewish idea of the sacrificial system. And the, the law had all these sacrifices that they were to perform and the spiritual service of worship, that phrase identifies that if you're going to worship God, then you've got to go through these procedures. 
if you're going to live life as a Christian, you have to submit yourself to God, a spiritually living, holy and acceptable being, for him to do what he wants through. Which means that even if you want him to use you, that can't be your motivation. All you have to do is say, I'm here. Whatever you want to do, use me here or not. It's your call. I'm right here. You've declared me holy in Christ. You've made me acceptable to you. I am here as a living and holy sacrifice, ready for you to do what you will through me, should you choose to put me into service. In a nutshell, that's the Christian way of life. Our verses don't stop there, but we're going to for the night in just a couple minutes. Once he gives this command, he says, and stop being conformed to this world. So once you've set yourself as a sacrifice to God, ready for him to use the way he wants, you've got to stop this process of being conformed, which means don't get off that table. In other words, operate in a fellowship and don't reach out and take the bait in the trap. Stay in fellowship. Stay on the altar as a sacrifice to him. That's what he's saying. We'll get into this verse next week. You're only holy, you're only acceptable to God if you have depended upon Christ as your Savior. That and that alone makes you holy. If you haven't done that, you're outside of Christ and you cannot be holy, set apart for a specific task by God because you can't have any part with him. He cannot have any part with sin. If you haven't depended upon Christ to be your Savior, that's it. All you have to do. Depend upon Him to take the penalty for your sins. He will do so. He's already paid it. The funds will be applied to your account. And you'll be entered into a relationship with God. You'll be born again, it's called. Holy Spirit will generate in you a human spirit. You'll be declared holy and blameless, given a bunch of other privileges and rights. And you'll have this relationship with God that you can walk in and operate in. Let's pray.